This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, elections in Ecuador and racial issues in Brazil have our attention. But first, Kurt Devine is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. President Barack Obama re-emphasized his plan for comprehensive immigration reform during his State of the Union address. Obama said reforms must include a responsible pathway to citizenship that requires background checks, tax payments, and English language skills. And as we speak, bipartisan groups in both chambers are working diligently to draft a bill, and I applaud their efforts. So let's get this done. Send me a comprehensive immigration reform bill in the next few months, and I will sign it right away, and America will be better for it. Republican Senator Marco Rubio responded by stressing the importance of securing U.S. borders while enforcing existing laws. Political commentators say a bipartisan group of senators who support reform, known as the Gang of Eight, could be the key to legislative success. Mexican authorities detained six men who are accused of raping six Spanish tourists in Acapulco. Investigators believe the victims bought drugs from the suspects days before the rapes, which led the men to the beach house rented by the victims. About 40 people blocked the road to Acapulco's airport and said authorities falsely arrested five of their relatives as scapegoats for the crime. Two of the suspects have been identified as attackers in a separate case. Tourism industry experts worry the assault in Acapulco will affect revenue for resorts throughout Mexico. The Rio Carnival brought an eclectic mix of musicians, colossal floats, and thousands of sparkling dancers to Brazil's capital for what many people consider to be the largest celebration in the world. Judges crowned the Villa Isabel Samba School as champion of the Carnival Parade for highlighting Brazil as the world's breadbasket. About half a million visitors traveled to Rio de Janeiro for the five-day festival, and some officials estimate as many as five million people took part in this year's street parties. Venezuelan Vice President Nicolas Maduro offered assurances this week that the country's president is on the mend. President Hugo Chavez continues receiving complex medical treatment in Cuba after undergoing cancer surgery two months ago. Maduro says Chavez will complete his cycle of treatment at some point, but he did not offer any further details. Chavez recently overcame a severe respiratory infection, but most Venezuelan officials can only speculate about his current condition. Members of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC, killed at least seven Colombian soldiers and injured five in the southern province of Caqueta. Colombian soldiers killed an unknown number of rebels in the fighting, but an army spokesperson said the attack came as the worst blow to security forces since peace talks began between the groups last year. Colombian officials and FARC leaders continue to negotiate over land ownership and agrarian reform. Chilean police arrested 20 members of the indigenous Mapuche tribe after clashing with the group outside of a courthouse. About 12 Mapuche Indians threw rocks at police cars while demanding that authorities release Fernando Miacheo, a tribe member charged with robbery, arson, and attempted murder. 
Miocheo has protested his arrest by holding a hunger strike for more than 50 days. A sect of the Mapuche recently burned forestry farms and equipment to demand the return of their ancestral lands, resulting in greater tension with Chilean authorities. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. Thanks, Kurt. This weekend, President Rafael Correa of Ecuador makes a run for re-election. We asked Rob Albro of American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies to analyze the race and politics in Ecuador. Here are excerpts from our conversation. Well, I think we can expect to see Rafael Correa in a cakewalk. All signs seem to indicate that this is not much of a campaign, that uh, Correa's uh, re-election is all but assured. Polls have been um, around 50-something to 60-something percent in terms of the expectation for his for the popular vote. Let, let me just cut in there, and, and, and I have some recent polls, one from Telesur that has him at 63 percent against Guillermo Lasso's 16 percent, and one prefer, from Perfiles de Opinión with him at 62 percent and Lasso at 9 percent. Right. So, so that would seem to indicate... The cakewalk, as you mentioned. Yes, and um, Lasso, Guillermo Lasso, who's a, a banker and a technocrat, um, had been, it, people had thought that he would be the you know, main contender to uh, Correa. Interestingly, despite his seeming uh, center-right credentials, his campaign has mostly echoed much of what Correa himself is already doing or has proposed to do. So what that's meant is it just sort of confirmed, whether intentionally or unintentionally, that Correa's policies are the right ones and or that were one to vote for Lasso, you'd get much the same. There are, besides Correa and Lasso, six other candidates. And so more or less the opposition failed to come together in this election to to oppose Correa. I don't think it's it makes sense to even talk about an opposition. There are certainly uh, different social sectors in Ecuador society that are opposed to the Correa administration. Um, broadly, at the broadest level, we could be talking about left-leaning social movement uh, groups, um, indigenous peoples, um, familiar uh, organizations like CONAI and their uh, political party face, the Pachacutec, uh, have had a fallout with Correa over his extractivist uh, economic policies, um, labor unions. So that would be mining and petroleum? Primarily oil, yeah. Uh, uh, labor unions, uh, there was in 2010 a, an uproar where there was a police, perhaps attempted coup d'etat, that failed. Um, so different parts of the teachers of uh, what are we would consider the traditional left uh, are not crazy about uh, Korea, but nor are what we would call economic elites or oligarchs uh, typically big fans. So he's being opposed from from uh, both the tra- what we would traditionally call the the far right and the far left. Yes, and and it's really quite remarkable that that opposition is so irrelevant. So one of the things that we can point to is that. With the social upheaval, 2005-2006, that really became the base that Correa has used to maintain his power in office. And by the way, Correa stands to be the first uh, elected president to complete his term of office in Ecuador since 1996, uh, which which is to say this has been a perilous uh, job, and uh, he's managed to be, this will be, if he's reelected, his, th- his third 
re-election. Uh, so con- we could also then point to him providing some stability Right, for so Ecuador. after the constitutional reforms in t- 2008, they required that there be a, another election for the presidency, which he won handily with a, with a uh, straight popular majority of over 50%. So what we're seeing is um, the traditional uh, political contenders in terms of social sectors are uh, almost entirely irrelevant. Korea has been able to construct from the... Uh, upheavals of 2005-2006, a kind of a new, uh, you know, as it's often called, populist-nationalist consensus, largely around um, the support of urban, uh, urban poor social sectors with whom he's built a close relationship through his, his social welfare uh, policies and so forth. He is generally recognized as, as part of uh, what we might call the traditional progressive left of Latin America, although you and I have had some discussions in the past about whether that means anything now, but more or less in the orbit of Hugo Chavez and, and some of those other neighbors in South America that um, that would give him a particular point on the spectrum of politics in the region. Yeah, I think it's interesting the perceptions of Korea from different vantage points. So from the U.S. policy perspective, his often anti-imperialist, anti-U.S. rhetoric, his uh, avoiding of the debt, uh, Ecuador's national debt in 2009, his um, social welfare policies, which look and are discussed as quote-unquote socialist, uh, his the Assange episode, uh, were all very important moments in kind of Korea seeming to conform to Uh, a traditional leftist firebrand leader. And indeed, he is uh, often, at least rhetorically, a leftist firebrand. Just uh, a few week ago, he was accusing the U.S., the CIA, as uh, actively engaged in undermining his campaign and, uh, you know, thereby violating the sovereignty of Ecuador, the integrity of Ecuador's electoral process, and so on. Let's let's go back to your point of view there in a bit, but let's talk about those two areas. The, the CIA um, accusations, for lack of a better term, and the Assange yeah. incident, in, in that some would accuse him of fear-mongering to, to get people behind his campaign, and that he's saying that the CIA has a, has a plot to assassinate him before right. the election. Right, which was based on, on um, some reportage done by a particular journalist. and From Chile, I believe. Right, and so it's kind of hard to verify um, stories like this often grow legs very quickly, and he's used it to good effect. I would say that it's not entirely ridiculous to propose that U.S. has some interest in influencing elections. Um, recent past, not distant past, shows some signs of you know U.S. embassy officials and, and so forth in various other countries, neighboring countries, saying things and doing things that one might understand as... We, we should point out that the ambassador has, of course, said... The, the right. U.S. ambassador to Ecuador has said that this is absolutely false. Right, and and uh, it's important to notice that the U.S. ambassador's behavior has been scrupulous. I mean, he's he's not interested. There, this, there's no interest there, um, at least publicly, in some kind of meddlesome U.S. footprint. In fact, I think the U.S. understands that that is not in its best interest at this time. Nonetheless, the rumor is effective, and it does go along with the Assange issue, where. Uh, I think Korea saw an opportunity to to, to poke the U.S. in 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 the eye and say. You know, uh, we are interested in our own foreign policy objectives in Ecuador. And it was part of a broader commitment to 
seizing opportunities to demonstrate Ecuador's sovereignty as a nation that's no longer going to, for example, host a U.S. military base, that's no longer going to roll over when multinational corporations make unreasonable, in its judgment, business deals to extract resources. Um, so it's a change in tone and practice with respect to um, how Ecuador is going to conduct its business abroad, sovereignty being the key term, and domestically it plays well because, of course, it, it seems to suggest Ecuador is coming up in the world and can speak um, to powers that be in ways that they have to pay attention to. And, and since we're talking about that, uh, for those who don't track Ecuador, Ecuador is giving asylum currently to Julian Assange of WikiLeaks in London, in their embassy in London, um, because Assange says that if he is let go and um, goes through the legal process of those who, who want him in other countries to answer for, for, for various charges, that he'll end up back in the U.S. That's right. And so what's interesting about that is that part of the point that Korea has made with respect to the Assange case is the way in which the U.S. Uh, would like to control or influence, let's call it, global information flows, the media, free expression, WikiLeaks being an example of, uh, you know, the, the backstage that, uh, from the point of view of Korea, you know, the, the, the U.S. doesn't want anyone to see. And yet, at home, on the home front, Korea has had a very combative relationship with Ecuador's national media, which, in his view, has been historically controlled by a media oligarchy that is fundamentally opposed to his particular administration, it not being in keeping with those traditional elites. And so his view has been to really battle the uh, Ecuador's uh, press in the courts and elsewhere, and has he's won various lawsuits admittedly, as the president. Um, and so it's a confused message. So internationally, yes, free expression. Domestically, uh, a government or an administration willing to tilt with its own media, but because uh, it sees that media as kind of neo-colonialist. We have devoted whole programs to, to that, and, and we have to acknowledge that that's not unlike other Latin American countries right. where the media are representative more of an oligarchy rather than the people and, and various sectors that are not represented. Um, but beyond that, what can we expect to see now that it looks like there will be an easy re-election for Korea? What will we see in his next term? Well, so there are, let's point to several areas that are going to be areas of attention. It's not entirely clear what his policies might be, but Currently, they look something like this, and we can expect a continuation because this has been successful for, for Korea, the politician and also the government. Um, one is the question of the relationship between the importance of their uh, extractivist economic development model and the government's ability to engage in social welfare services. So one of the sources of Korea's incredible popularity. At the moment, I believe he has the highest popularity rating of any Latin American leader. It's like in 80%. Is because of his social redistributive policies. He's been able to do a whole variety of things in education, in health care, subsidies for the poor, uh, subsidies for self-employed, uh, self and a whole variety of things of this sort, some of which are familiar from uh, sort of Chavez in Venezuela, uh, where 
that money comes from the oil revenues that uh, Ecuador is able to generate and to rely on, which are uh, large and a significant dimension of its economy. Ecuador's economy is not terribly diverse, however. So if those revenues fall, that social welfare policy approach is not sustainable. Those, uh, those uh, monies disappear. So one of the issues is how can Ecuador's government manage its global economic footprint and maintain its center-left, social welfare-driven uh, kind of coalition, um, keeping at bay, you know, uh, some economic elites who aren't interested in, in seeing this administration's success and other social sectors who are uh, disenchanted with his lack of interest in uh, working with them. And what's fascinating is that we, we're at a moment here where you're seeing governments and policies like Ecuador's, which cannot easily be shoehorned into any particular model that we might be, with which we might be familiar. Um, it's not neoliberalism. It's not socialism. It's not, you know, typical populist authoritarianism. Um, it's a kind of heady hybrid brew of all of these things, depending upon the uh, interlocutor. If it's the foreign, if it's foreign marketplaces, you know, anti-U.S. rhetoric can coexist with good deal making to increase uh, petroleum revenues. If it's uh, the domestic policies, it's uh, socialist-seeming social welfare policies that co that depend upon uh, wise capitalist investment and so forth. So what we're really seeing is this kind of effort in places like Ecuador, uh, guided by an overall sustainable goal toward greater sovereignty, that adopts a variety of practical hybrid approaches. Well, we'll see going forward whether these all end up coming true. Thank you so much, Rob Albro of American University Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, joining us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you, Rick. Always a pleasure. I want to finish school and then go to college to be able to graduate and have the future my parents couldn't have because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Recently, this program traveled to Florida to discuss racial issues in Brazil with one of the experts, Dr. Bernd Reiter of the University of South Florida. Reiter is the author of Negotiating Democracy in Brazil, The Politics of Exclusion. Here are excerpts from our on-location interview. Uh, we want to talk about affirmative action in Brazil today on the program, and you are one of the experts in this area. Why is this a contentious problem in Brazil? It's contentious because it really, um, it's a program that not, is not just about talking about race, it really um, has an impact on resources, on access, and therefore all of a sudden people who have historically enjoyed privilege now see themselves confronted with um, other people who, who dispute them. So all of a sudden there is a, a real policy that really impacts people's life chances. Um, their ability to get into the universities, the public universities that are very, very competitive um, and are free. So 
with this policy, there is a, um, it's a very impactful policy. It, it will change people's prospects, people's aspect, uh, uh, chances to find jobs. So is this where affirmative action quota systems to make sure that Afro-Brazilians are included? Is this where it really starts in the educational system or is it also going to be in the employment system in Brazil? There is some initiatives also in the employment system. Actually the government initiated some uh, affirmative action measures. Um, that's how the whole thing even started. Uh, some ministries started to uh, uh, create quotas. Um, then some private firms, actually American firms operating in Brazil, uh, also had some initiatives because they were just, uh, they received American, uh, black American CEOs or uh, employees and they were just astonished by the fact that there were just no uh, workers or no employees of African descent in banks or I think Bank of Boston was one of the first uh, in the private sector. In the educational sector it's an, initi it's an initiative that um, that is uh, it's not a federal initiative and it, it was not a federal initiative. Now it is actually. It just became there was a recent law uh, it's now a federal initiative. Before that it was just an uh, initiative by several different federal universities though. Uh, as well as state universities. So we had experiences from Bahia in the Northeast, also in Brasilia, different universities took this on. So it's, at this point, it's uh, universities, state and federal, it's private companies, and it's also government. Have the private universities been accepting of this? You know, the, as this happened, you know, it's not that long ago that there were no private, no real private universities in Brazil. It's, there is Catholic universities, they have a little history, but um, with the new constitution, particularly after 96, 96 the uh, government passed, or there was a new law, a new educational law, which kind of opened the doors for private education. And now we have a, a proliferation of private universities. So they have uh, their own policies, and it's a little different. They actually, um, I think there's a topic, I think it's a little, um, they make it more complicated, I think, to talk about it. The reaction has been in the public universities that there was a lot of skepticism, you know, a lot of resistance surprisingly even among those who benefit from affirmative action. Um, the, I, you know, as you know I, I did a, a book about this and I invited one scholar to contribute a chapter and her research is on is interviewing the people who benefit from affirmative action and she found that most of those are opposed to affirmative action even though they benefit from it. Um, and, and, and why is that? I guess it's because of the, the stigma that it creates uh, it's still a difficult and uncomfortable uh, situation in Brazil. There were some weird cases of, there was this famous case, I guess, of twins, uh, one being admitted um, under the affirmative action quota system into the university, the other one who was lighter in, in skin tone was not. Because there, I because there is no real handling of the concept of race. Not Even to this point there is not. People will not really know or not have one race that they clearly associate with you will have people uh, identifying differently in one family. More light skin, more black skin, more by color. This goes back to the earlier concept of isn't it better to get away from the idea of skin color? Um, but yet, how do you, how do you make, make up these inequalities? Yeah, it's very difficult because it's, I mean, there is, I think, there's so much mixture that goes on in terms of discourses. I think there's a political discourse that requires numbers. And, and that discourse that's, that's an old discourse of, of you know, Brazilian black power movement. It started in the 80s where there was a campaign to say, 
no desh sa in branc, which means do not let your color pass for white. In the senses, self-declare black. And don't self-declare mulado, mestizo, leche, café, whatever. All of these different, they had over 80 uh, different, you know. 80 different variations. <laughs> different names for how people self-classified. In so, the senses? Yeah. Uh, in one sense. Then they eliminated, they changed the question and, you know. But it's not easy, you know, because there is no real uh, concept of race. So what we have now is black, brown, pardo. Uh, um, and that makes it a little easier. So there's a political task to say, well, we want, you know, numbers, and we know because we know that people that are non-white um, suffer from discrimination, suffer from a lack of equal opportunities. Uh, they are looked upon with suspicion. Uh, they have a much harder time to find a job, and they have a much harder time um, to get into university, and they're disproportionately poor. And uh, numbers translates into political power. And then to say, okay, let's create numbers and then we can, you know, create political power, yes. The problem is the identity part of this. And that's where people, um, that's where the reaction also came. Because we know that from history, we know that once you have these social categories, people use them to self-identify, to create uh, readings of their own identities. And that was the fear, I guess, in Brazil for some people who then spoke out and said, we can't have this. This is an imperialism, an American imperialism. This is... Uh, introducing racial categories in a country that doesn't have them and that will create racial um, animosity. So that was a kind of counter position. Some very known academics actually spearheaded this and some pretty prominent people, Caetano Veloso for example, embraced this saying that's not for us, that's not what we want to have, we don't want to have racial groups. And so what's your view on this? I what do you think? I think, it's I think you can only deal with inequalities if you recognize them. And you have to have numbers for that. So, I think it's very important to know what goes on. You can only knowing you can only know what goes on if you count, if you do research, and that requires categories. So I'm for research and finding more, finding out more about how inequality works and how um, racism works. I know that it's a problem that people end up using these categories, these census categories, for their own identification. Um, I think that's that's a side effect that might be un unfortunate, but I do not think that this, this will create some sort of animosity. I think if anything, there was always animosity. It was just under the, under the carpet. You know, if, if, um, if the majority of African descendants are poor and illiterate and they don't have access to, um, to the public sphere, they don't have a voice, they're invisible, then, yeah, then it's nice and quiet. Nobody speaks up. Of course, once you change that, they will speak up and that will lead to some sort of m more, fl more uh, friction, more challenge. But that's what it is. So I'm, I'm all for it. I think it's very important. I think you can only be constructing a democracy, you can only construct a democracy if there is equal opportunities, if, if inequalities are recognized and addressed. Where do you see this going? I'm hopeful, actually. I wasn't hopeful, uh, you know, I've been looking at this for a while. I'm hopeful now, more hopeful, because I think there is a genuine will to address inequality in Brazil, even among middle, uh, particularly among middle classes, also white middle classes. I think there is no history of racial hatred, uh, stuff like, you know, you have in the U.S. There is no history of that. I think there is people who have benefited from privileges, undeservingly so, white people. Um, they reacting 
because they take it, they see how these privileges are being undermined or taken away or disputed. That's to be expected. Um, but I think that is that will go away. And on the long run, I think that we have a, a more just society, a society with uh, more opportunities for more people. Uh, um, and I think it's it's it's, um, it's good. It can only be good. Um, and again. I don't see a history of hatred or of hate crimes that doesn't really exist. So, so I think it's a good, it's a good development. I'm hopeful. Dr. Bernd Reiter of the University of South Florida, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Travel support for this program was provided by the School of Communication at American University. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions. Mm -hmm.